The Tour de France is underway again. What Wimbledon is to tennis or the World Series is to baseball, the Tour de France surely is to cycling. Three Americans have won this contest, including the 2006 winner, Floyd Landis. Floyd Landis' victory in last year's tour swirled in controversy when reports hit the media just days after its completion of a positive urine test for testosterone, a substance banned from use in the sport. This matter still awaits a final arbitration decision one year now after it all started. Floyd Landis has steadfastly maintained that the test in question was wrong, and he's now on a book tour in support of his life story, told in Positively False, the real story of how I won the Tour de France. He was in Sacramento last week for a book signing, and this correspondent was in attendance and can report that a throng of supporters turned out to see him. Copies of Positively False are being snapped up, and after Mr. Landis took questions for about a half hour, he then accommodated a very long line of people who wanted to get their books signed and their photos taken with a man who was clearly their champion. He's still on his book tour and now joins us from San Diego, I believe. We're pleased to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Floyd Landis. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Well, Floyd, we're sorry we could not get you on the air before you visited locally, but uh, better late than never. Um, how many cities are you planning to visit on this tour? Um, I've done, let's see, almost 10 book signings now. And um, I'm down in L.A. now, and I'm going to do one in Riverside County um, in a couple of days, and then I'm, then I'm done for a little while, wait to see what happens with this arbitration. All right. As I mentioned, the crowd I saw at Borders here in Sacramento was clearly very enthusiastic of you. Are you finding this level of, uh, of support everywhere you go? Yeah, that's been typical of the book signings I've done, and it's a good feeling because for the last year I've been fighting this arbitration thing and focused on that, and um, it's good to have some um, positive support uh, everywhere I go. Well, we want to talk, of course, about about the central issue, why you wrote the book and things, but uh, I'm curious to read that you told friends early in your cycling days that someday you were going to win the Tour de France, and of course you did last year. And what, what kind of commitment of time did that require to get you just, just even in contention? Uh, well, cycling, for everybody that's in the Tour, and it's going on right now, it's a many-year process to get to that level. Um, it took me about um, 15 years of hard training and um, 10 years as a professional to get to the very top level. I've done the tour five times now. I did it three times with Lance Armstrong on the Postal Service team from 2002 uh, to four. It's a learning curve that takes a long time, and it's it's common, and it's like that for everybody. And that's what makes it an exciting sport for people that do it um, and are enthusiasts also. It's something you can improve at for a long period of time. Lance Armstrong evidently picked you to join his team in past years, and your strengths have been credited with helping him win those past tours. You're noted for being good in the mountains and good in time trials. So can you explain to the to, to listeners maybe how cycling events have these individual winners yet have to use teamwork to make one rider victorious? Yeah, that's what separates it and makes it unique from American sports. Most American team sports, the team wins and the team gets the credit. In cycling, there's a team. In the Tour, for example, there's nine guys on each team. They have generally one person on each team who is capable of winning a race. And the other guys work for that person. In cycling, drafting is a big factor. Um, keeping the team leader out of the wind is, a, is really the primary job of the team. Over and above that, if there's an, an incident, a crash, or a mechanical problem, or the, or the leader needs food or water from the car behind, the rest of the team will do that. But ultimately, they're um, trying to preserve as much energy for the team leader so that in the critical parts of the race, um, he's got the maximum amount left. That's the point of having the team around. Well, let's talk a little bit about the fact people see it on television or people see bicycling races. There's a pack of cyclists wheeling down the highway. They're bunched together, and sometimes people will pull out uh, from that pack. How much less exertion does it require when you're in a pack of people? 
considerably less. Uh, once you've done it, it's hard to, to understand how much difference it makes. And certainly it's at the highest level at the Tour de France, for example, it's a very big factor because the speed is that much higher. So, I mean, the average speed before they get to the mountain stages for the first seven to ten days, something like that, is close to 30 miles an hour. <laughs> so it's a, it's a very big difference being in the pack um, over riding in the front. Well, I'd recommend any listener who, who, who would like to, to try to go 30 miles an hour on a bicycle, they're welcome to go out and give it a go. Because that, that, is, that is just, it's impossible. How do you guys do it? That's impossible. It's the hardest race in the world. And it's everyone um, who's a professional aspires to win a stage or, or um, at least focuses on that race. And so that effectively makes it the hardest race in the world because everyone there um, cares more about that race than any other race. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, about what uh, uh, what people need to do is strategizing for the Tour de France. It has daily winners, and yet uh, someone, of course, is the overall leader. And if you want to get ahead, and we'll talk about that momentarily, how you famously did so in last year's uh, Tour, sometimes you have to pull ahead of the pack. What kind of penalty do you have to pay when you do that? You want to save as much energy throughout the first part of the race as possible, and um, then at some critical point in the race, in my case on stage 17, where um, was one of the harder mountain stages, you want to spend the energy and, and make it count when the other guys are tired. Uh, it's a tactical event as much as it is a physical event. Generally, the time is made up on the last mountain of the stage or in the individual time trials there also. Um, someone who is strong enough to win the tour can often make up quite a bit of time on the other guys. What is a time trial, Floyd? Most of what you see on, on television, if you watch the race, the majority of the stages are events where the entire pack is riding together, and you see um, the strategy playing out that way. A time trial is um, an individual thing where each rider starts a minute apart, and uh, there is no drafting involved. It's just purely the, the strongest guy wins. And so the tactical parts of the race occur um, in the mountain stages and in the other stages, but in the time trials, it really does come down to who can ride the hardest for. Generally, they're, <clears throat> sorry, generally they're an hour long. Um, so it comes down to the strongest guy, and, and so um, the tactical decisions are, are all made um, in the mountain stages, and then uh, really there's no place to hide in the time trials. Well, last year's tour contained a remarkable episode. You, you had a, a bad day, which appeared really to kill your chances to win the tour, which was followed by an amazingly good day, where you made a tremendous gain using your strength in hill climbing to your best advantage, and it's really regarded as one of the most amazing comebacks, I think, in tour history. Can you talk about stages 16 and 17 last year? Yes. Before that, uh, my team and I uh, were pretty confident that we had the race under control and we were doing things right and we had paced ourselves properly. But on stage 16, I didn't eat enough food in the beginning of the stage. And uh, what happens when you do that is you bonk, we call it. You basically just run out of blood sugar. And it's hard to, to force yourself to eat um, enough in those, uh, in those stages because by the time you get to the, the point in the race where the, the last few mountain stages... You really don't feel like eating food, and you got to force yourself to do it. And if you're not yeah. completely focused on that, you end up not eating enough, and you pay for it later in the stage. And so on the last climb on that day, I bonked, is what we call it. <laughs> I don't know that most people have a, a word for it because they don't experience it. But um, it's not something that that destroys your fitness. Of course, it what it does is it ruins the stage, and you lose whatever amount of time on that day. But um, once you get to the finish line and you eat some food and you rest a little bit, you're okay the next day. Just the problem is then getting motivated because, in my case, uh, it appears that our chances of winning the tour were destroyed and, and it's a big blow to morale. So getting motivated for the next day at that point was the hard part. Uh, but then the following day, stage 17, um, because I had lost so much time, the other contenders for the tour had more or less written off 
my chances of winning. And so I assumed that they would let me go um, alone in the beginning of the stage, hoping that, well, planning to um, at least keep me close enough for where I couldn't get back into contention to win the race. Um, what I was hoping for, obviously, was that they'd miscalculate and not chase soon enough or not uh, work together soon enough to catch me. And, and it worked out. And uh, obviously it looks like it was a wonderful plan, but the chances of it working were pretty small. Before we talk about the drug testing issues in your case, can we can we address the fact there's really no doubt that performance-enhancing drugs or hormones are rampant in so many sports? Uh, I like to cite the fact that here in California we have a governor who made himself a celebrity via the use of anabolic steroids, for example. But why do you guess that cycling, which has nowhere near the impact of sports like football or baseball, has gotten singled out for so much attention in this area? Well, cycling uh, in some ways brings it on itself because of the public way that it deals with it. I don't know how other sports deal with it. I don't know um, exactly how their testing programs work or their um, drug prevention programs work. But uh, in cycling, unfortunately for the sport itself and for the clean athletes, um, the focus has become um, doping because whenever there is even a suspicion of, of some kind of doping, it's immediately made into a story. As far as other sports are concerned, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any window in, into how those sports work. Um, but certainly cycling is doing what it can to try to prevent doping. And I think ultimately it's Right now, the way it's dealing with it is it's hurting the sport and, and what people enjoy about watching the sport in the process. Well, you noted here in your visit to Sacramento that you never tested positive in any race ever. And last year, you competed and won the Tour de California and some other competitions, which do require testing. So I want to clarify, in your case, there's been only one, one positive test ever, correct? Well, to be clear, that was not a positive test either. All right, okay. Let's talk about it then. Your urine test from that period, we talked about stage 17. That alone was the only one that was reported as positive. This testing is rather complicated and, and hard to explain, but basically, in theory, they're done to check for testosterone, which is not produced in a competitor's body, but from an external source. You were reported to have findings that pointed towards this external source, this hormone. So the question is, what was found, and how do you explain those findings? Well, I believe that the science that um, makes up this test, which they use, is, is reliable science, and I think if the test is done in a proper way, that there's a reasonably good chance that a person that tests positive probably is guilty. Um, unfortunately, the World Anti-Doping Agency has, <clears throat> has not held their labs to a very high standard of, of um, excellence and perfection. The way, they, the way, unfortunately, they hold the athletes to a standard of perfection. And so when this test was done, what they need to do in any kind of test, whether it's for testosterone or any other substance, is they identify what it is that they're trying to measure, uh, and then they measure it is a two-step process, and they didn't identify testosterone properly, and it's uh, more complicated than that. They test for metabolites of testosterone, which is a uh, breakdown product of used-up testosterone um, in a basic way of explaining it. Um, and you need to identify which ones you're trying to measure, and then uh, you measure them, and they didn't do it properly. They didn't measure what they were claiming to have measured, and so it's a meaningless number. What they're looking at is peaks on a, on a graph, and the peaks all look the same. You need to know which one is what. And they didn't do that. And that was not refuted in the hearing because they couldn't refute it. And uh, unfortunately, that is such complicated science that most people just by at face value what they're told by the agencies that um, I was guilty, but uh, was not guilty. They never tested the right thing, and they never refuted it because they can't. Well, I think anyone in the science or medicine knows that you can have a lab error, you can have false positive tests. And yet, uh, from my understanding, which 
is limited of this, looking at it, that uh, there is a test you can do that looks for the source of um, testosterone, whether it's a plant source, which would be external, externally applied, or endogenous, one originates in the athlete's body. You tested positive for that one as well. That's, that's, uh, that's the test I was uh, just referring to. Right. Um, and when that test is, is not positive, then that's, that's the end. I mean, if it's a natural source, then, then there's no point in proceeding forward. All right. You said last week that a ruling in your case is imminent. You expect to be vindicated as this, the current tour is winding down. You seem very upbeat about it, and so did your fans. So the question is, who's going to make the ruling, and when might we expect it? There's a three-person arbitration panel who um, heard arguments from both sides in the hearing uh, a few months ago. You probably heard about that. Um, both three are in the process of, um, of I don't know what, um, hopefully deliberating and, and discussing it. Uh, but it has been quite some time since this took place, and, and I'm hopeful that, that they'll make a decision soon because it's not reasonable that it would take much longer than this. But anyway, I have no way of knowing when that's going to be, and, and uh, I look forward to hearing what their explanation is in any event. Well, Floyd, I'd like to also address a really remarkable aspect of, of your victory. Last year, you had previously suffered a fracture to your femur, which may later cause, and in your case, in fact, did later cause, some osteonecrosis of the ball in that uh, hip ball and socket joint. You actually raced last year with a bad hip. I did, yeah. I had a bad fracture, and like you said, it's not uncommon when you have one that over a period of a couple of years, um, the bone deteriorates and causes, um, ultimately, causes the ball in the joint to need to be replaced. I had uh, what's called a BHR, a hip resurfacing procedure. Uh, replaces the bearing surfaces on the joint uh, back in September last year, and, and I'm doing well now. I had a couple months of um, therapy, and since then I'm while not limited in any way by my hip or uh, mechanically the way it functions. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't been able to train quite as much as in the past just because I've been dealing with the case, but certainly physically I'm much happier now. When you were preceded in this by, by Bo Jackson, famously got osteonecrosis of his hip. He was playing uh, a Major League Baseball and football. He was able to continue with baseball with an artificial hip, but uh, cycling is less jarring than running a base path or chasing flies, so I think medical science is wondering... Uh, with this new technology, you're going to be able to return to cycling as you were before. Yeah, well, cycling, number one, like you said, is less uh, damaging to the, to the prosthetic device. And certainly, um, he had his done more than 10 years ago, 15 years ago now, I guess. And, yeah. and the technology has come a long way since it's a much different um, prosthesis than what he had. Um, but yeah, there's no reason to believe that I can't get back to the same level. And uh, hopefully, that, uh, with the ruling in my favor, that I can start training for that very soon. Well, I think I should put a plug in for uh, for the, the medical doctors to do this because I got to say my my mom got an artificial hip a couple of years back and it just changed her life. It's a wonderful thing. It is. It's it's outstanding and it's something that they've um, pretty much uh, perfected now. Hip replacements are very uh, well. If you need one, it's a miserable thing, and unless you've experienced it, it's hard to explain. But they the replacement itself really does solve the problem and it changes everything about your life. Well, do you have any words of wisdom for those who play sports and what to watch for in that area of, of the hip being injured? Well, if you fracture it in a bad way, then you just need to pay attention to see if it's um, going to start deteriorating. And when it does, there's really not a whole lot you can do to prevent it. You just have to deal with it until it's um, really unbearable, and then you, you have to get it replaced. Um, apart from an actual fracture, there are some conditions that are genetic that cause it to happen, but I don't know that there's really sports that... that uh, speed up that process. It's just kind of something that occurs from an unpreventable problem. 
Well, I got a final question and, and a final comment for you, Floyd. Uh, the question is, how was Ruth's Chris Steakhouse here? Because I had the pleasure of helping your support team as the as the book signing line snaked through the entire store. I volunteered to go over and, and make a reservation what I thought would be at Mesa's. <laughs> They've been replaced by Ruth's Chris. Uh, how was the restaurant? It was quite good, and the and the um, the waiter and the staff there was uh, exceptional. I will say, I enjoyed it. Well, good. Uh, Macy's is gone, but I'm happy to see they've replaced it with something adequate. Uh, final comment, Floyd. Do you have any websites you'd like to send people to for more information? Um, yes, they can check out floydlandis.com, and I also have the floydfairnessfund.org, um, which is set up to raise money to for my defense and for the defense of other athletes in the future. Um, if there's any questions about hips, I certainly have links to that on my website, floydlandis.com, and um, I'm happy to do whatever I can to help people um, find the best um, the best solution for that because I know how miserable it is when you have a hip issue. Well, Floyd Landis, we certainly wish you wish you all the best. Hope that decision will come down, uh, you know, soon and and have good news. And um, we thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All righty. All right, bye. Once again, that was the 2006 Tour de France winner, Floyd Landis. His book, Positively False, The Real Story of How I Won the Tour de France, is currently in stores near you.